the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. And my mom told me that she was literally pacing the floor and she did not know what to say. She couldn't believe it. I cut goosebumps now saying it again. Total shock, like, what? You know, I still feel my heart going down to my stomach. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fianick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter yet again, another day, another Wednesday with my bestie. Yeah, here we are. (laughs) Being besties and also professionally jiving. It's such a gift. We really do professionally jive. We're so lucky. We're so lucky because we have no conflict with work. No, and it is probably the riskiest thing in the world to start a business with your best friend. And we did it and we're thriving. Because what I need to say, and I'm going to give the advice, is like the move is with everything, just offer to do it to help. Like whatever thing comes up, if both people volunteer, it's just no one's ever feeling like neglect. It's just it just works. I don't know how to I don't know how to say it. Like you just got to be willing to step in when someone else has something going on and vice versa and like just be happy to do it. And that's, yeah. that just breeds joy. We're just, we just work so well together and it makes me I know, so happy. I love it. I'm so grateful. I love you so much. Love you. So if you are listening to this right now, this is obviously part two of a multi-parter episode. If you have not listened to part one, this is not going to make any sense to you. So go back and listen to part one. Um, If you're listening on Patreon right now, you're getting this all at one time. You're binging it all at once. And if you haven't joined our Patreon yet, there's lots of bonus content for you over there. And obviously all our multi-parters you can listen to at once if you're the bingey type of a person. 100%. Besides getting two-parters all at the same time on Patreon, you get an extra fully researched true crime episode per month. We put a lot of work into these episodes on Patreon. Like We've fallen in love with Patreon as well because we have a lot more control over the kind of cases we can cover. So highly recommend you join us over there. I think it's worth the money personally, but I'm biased. (laughs) We're a little bit biased, but we we try to make it worth it for everybody over there because we appreciate your love and support so much. We love you. Love you. All right. Well, I think that that is enough of that. We should just jump into the case right now. So let's turn on the lights and turn up your anxiety. And let's dive into part two. When we left off last week, more than five years had passed since the murders of Rita Tangretti and Colleen McNamee. The investigation to this point had been vast. The Suffolk County Police said that they had taken the DNA of 152 men for comparisons against evidence found at the crime scenes. And it was at this point that the Suffolk County Police Department had quietly begun investigating one of their own. In 1998, Sergeant Michael S. Murphy of the Suffolk County Police was secretly looked at as a suspect. And it's unclear what it was that actually flagged Murphy as a possible suspect in the first place. And let's pause for a second to just talk about this. Like, for a police officer to get on the radar of a murder investigation, how the fuck does this happen? 
I mean, and we've seen that obviously, especially the Suffolk County police likes to just bury shit and like push shit aside. And like, so the fact that we don't know what it was that even tipped these people off, but it must have been bad because if it wasn't that bad, then they would have just pretended like they didn't see anything. Well, and if it wasn't evidence, it was his character. And if it's his character that people are thinking, hey, this is actually possible, like my colleague could do this, then we have to ask a more difficult question, which is how are these people getting on these police department forces, especially Suffolk County Police Department is among the most difficult to get onto in the country. So I'm going to answer that question really easily. Nepotism. So we mentioned this ever so briefly at the end of part one on this case, but Michael Murphy was the son of Thomas Murphy, who at the time of this case was the chief of detectives at the Suffolk County Police Department, which for context is a very high ranking position. So it helps you understand how exactly his son ended up on one of the most coveted police departments in the country. And what's interesting also is that like even this nepotism didn't stop him from being looked at. So I don't care who you are. People come for you eventually if you're shady. Right. So it's unclear whether Thomas Murphy knew that homicide detectives were looking at his son as a potential suspect, but we're going to assume that the answer is no, which is why Michael Murphy was secretly looked into as a suspect. An investigator named Robert Genna and a forensic scientist were tasked with examining Murphy's police vehicle, which again would have been done in secret without Michael Murphy's knowledge. Something that investigator Genna and the forensic scientist found next to Murphy's passenger seat was a pile of pencil shavings, which is kind weird. Very weird. And pencil shavings that might have matched what those wood chips that police were talking about that they found with both Rita and Colleen's bodies that you learned about in last week's episode. However, the significance of these wood chips would be a point of controversy throughout this entire case. You'll see why eventually, but just keep that in the back of your head. Either way, investigator Genna said that the pencil shavings found in Murphy's car were, quote, grossly dissimilar to the ones found at the crime scenes. And apparently this was as far as the investigation into Michael Murphy as a possible suspect went. I mean, it kind of ended there. They had nothing more to go on and their interest in him fizzled out. Question. So did the interest fizzle out because he was the son of the chief of detectives? I don't know. There's no proof of that. But I pose the question given Suffolk County's history of rampant corruption. And guess what? Michael Murphy wouldn't be the only Suffolk County cop who is considered a viable suspect in this case, which I guess at this point is not surprising, but like, what the fuck? It is and it isn't. Like, yeah. I think it's crazy, but when you're you're talking about this in the context of this department, now it's sort of old hat. <laughs> like, yeah. now that we know how Suffolk County operated with James Burke, Obviously, there's a new regime in there now who's who's treated the Long Island serial killer case with great care and seriousness. But prior to that, I mean, this is what was happening in the 90s. Even worse was happening in the 80s. So up until very recently, you couldn't trust what these people were doing. Right. So this other cop that was looked into was named Teddy Hart. And it's probably because one of his colleagues knew about the skeletons in Teddy's closet. So it turns out that years after these murders, Hart was actually charged for threatening to rape and mutilate women. A police officer was threatening to rape and mutilate women. Insane. Apparently, Hart would meet women during traffic stops and he would zero in on them. And then he would repeatedly call them just to berate them. 
And in 2001, Teddy Hart pleaded guilty to aggravated harassment and resigned in disgrace. He was sentenced to probation for an unknown period of time. What a guy. What a gentleman. And it's sad that he only received probation, but not at all surprising, right? Especially since, according to Newsday, Hart was also known for keeping missing persons reports in his home, which is a giant red flag. I mean, this guy should be looked at. Like, people should just be keeping an eye on this dude. That's weird. Either way, you can see why a guy like Teddy Hart was looked at for these murders. However, at the time prior to his resignation, Officer Teddy Hart was cleared as a potential suspect in this case. And the reasons he was taken off the suspect list have not been made public, but certainly the police had their reasons to do so, and he wasn't the killer. So there you go. So beyond the confusion and all the weirdness of two cops being looked at as potential suspects in this case, the investigation was confused even further when several people made false confessions. One of them was an unnamed 18-year-old who lived very near the location where Rita's body was found. This unnamed 18-year-old may have been upset because his mother's boyfriend had hired Rita for sex work two nights before she was killed. So this seems like it could be a viable motive, but the 18-year-old was cleared possibly because the 18-year-old didn't confess to the killing of Colleen McNamee, and detectives were certain that these two cases were, in fact, connected. Right. So we're already, you know, at the time Teddy Hart is looked at and these other cops are looked at, we're already five years out from when the murders occurred. So this is already way longer than what's ideal in terms of solving a case. But the years continue to trickle by. In 1996, Crime Stoffers offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. And at the same time, Colleen's parents also offered an additional $1,000 for information. And at that time, a press release went out to media when Colleen's parents announced their contribution to the reward fund. She was a mother, an aunt, a sister, a friend. She had lots of friends. She was a very loving human being, just like Colleen was. You know, Colleen's family put out even a reward to the apprehension or the know-abouts of their daughter's killer, you know, and they even put my Aunt Rita in there, you know, God bless them. And despite the increase of the reward, nothing new emerged. Time kept slipping by until eventually it had been a gut-wrenching 21 years since the murders occurred. And from the outside looking in, it appeared that the case was cold. There actually was movement happening behind the scenes, whether the families were aware of it or not, so that was at least good. According to the Daily Beast, in 1996, a New York State DNA data bank began a massive effort to collect DNA samples, initially only collecting samples from those convicted of homicide and sex crimes. The state data bank grew and became part of a combined DNA index system, or CODIS. By August of 2012, the applicable New York State law had been amended five times, gradually broadening mandatory collection to include everyone convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor. And this meant that CODIS was growing into a database that would lay the groundwork for captures of several murderers like the kind that had murdered Rita and Colleen. So given all the time that had passed, we're sure Rita and Colleen's families had all but given up hope that they'd ever see justice for either of them. That was until, out of the blue, on July 21st of 2014, a 48-year-old man named John Bitrolf was arrested. And he was arraigned and charged with second-degree murder in both cases for Rita and for Colleen. And he was held without bail. We thought it was a cold case. 
my cousin Anthony called my mom and said, Aunt Diana, they found my mom's killer. And my mom told me that she was literally pacing the floor and she did not know what to say. She couldn't believe it. I cut goosebumps now saying it again. It was like in total shock, like, what? You know, I still feel my heart going down to my stomach because I can still remember that day. My mom called me and she said, they've made an arrest for Aunt Rita's killer. And I said, what? I screamed so loud. I was so happy. I started crying. Even the tears now, I can remember that day. Just feel really relieved, finally. Anthony Tangretti could barely speak after he sat through the arraignment of the man now charged with murdering his mother and another woman in the early 1990s. His aunt said the family thought this day would never come. No, I never did. John, did you kill those two women? 48-year-old John Bitroloff of Manorville was arraigned today on charges he murdered 31-year-old Rita Tangretti and 20-year-old Colleen McNamee. Tangretti was found dead in a wooded area in East Patchogue in November. November of 1993. McNamee was found dead in the woods in Shirley in January of 1994. Police say both women worked as prostitutes. They were found naked, beaten, and strangled. First of all, I just got to say, the language they were using in this reporting is heartbreaking. Something we've talked about even earlier in this episode, but I'm not going to keep bringing it up. It's disgusting. They refer to Bitrolf as a father and family man and refer to the victims as prostitutes. Unacceptable. On another note, the arrest of Bitrolf was something to be celebrated, huge for several reasons. Of course, obviously, justice for Rita and Colleen. It had been long overdue. But beyond that, in 2014, when this was happening, it had been about four years since the bodies associated with the Long Island serial killer case had been found along Suffolk County's Ocean Parkway. So we're dealing with a lot of family members of a lot of victims connected to a serial killer case. So, of course, they're thinking, like, is this guy responsible for the murder of my child also? And that was a huge question at this point. Right, because a lot of similarities were now coming to the surface. There were the obvious ones. Bitrolf targeted sex workers. But then there were some other mind-blowing ones. Like how the daughter of Rita Tangretti, who we now know was murdered by Bitrolf, was reportedly best friends with Melissa Bartholomew, one of the first victims discovered at Gilgo Beach and attributed to the Long Island serial killer case. Bartholomew's mother also reported that Melissa had a lot of calls to Manorville from her phone at the time. So given these strong coincidences, it's really easy to see why some people believe that Bitrolf and Lisk were one and the same. However, the arrest of Rex Huerman has also thrown a real wrench into that possibility, further proving how cunning and misleading the coincidences can actually be. So who is this monster who is being accused of murdering Rita and Colleen and possibly others? You know the drill. John M. Bitrolf was born on July 1st of 1966, and it's likely that he spent most of his life in the state of New York. John had two younger brothers, and around 1985, 19-year-old John began dating his future wife, Patty. John got a tattoo of Patty's name on his arm, and together they'd have two sons. They began living together in 1993 and were married in 1995. And this was right around the time that John murdered Rita and Colleen. But even before that, John had accumulated a bit of a criminal record. In 1987, John was arrested for grand larceny and spent 60 days in jail. 
In February of 94, he was convicted for an assault that happened four years prior in 1990. But despite these crimes, the people who knew John thought he was a quote-unquote good guy. He definitely wasn't, so we're going to make that clear right now. Definitely, definitely fucking wasn't. But people just couldn't see it. He was really good at putting that mask on and off whenever he needed to. Just listen to what the guy in the next news report refers to him as. Trusting neighbors were stunned. Always helped everybody. It's just unbelievable. Nobody could believe it. He's like the mayor of this town. He knows everybody. He helps everybody. Okay, so this guy calls him the fucking mayor. Like, these people, like John Bitrolf, are so good at this. Yeah. And they're like, hey, maybe he's overcompensating. Maybe he helps you shovel snow from your driveway because he knows he just murdered someone and he needs to be seen as this, like, do-gooder. Like, yeah. no, people aren't doing good deeds for no reason. Unless occasionally, but not really. No, never. <laughs> never. <laughs> I also think, like, back in the day, I think it's a lot because there's – obviously a lot more true crime content out and you see the minds of psychopaths a lot like more people do these days like back in the day i feel like people could not comprehend if the version of that they saw of somebody was a good version there's no way that they could be a rapist or a murderer because they were so nice to me for that five minutes you know people just couldn't like they couldn't comprehend that I also think especially given all the discussions we've had about the reporting at this time i think the sensationalism of reporting back then, like monster Joel Rifkin sleep yeah. through the remains. Like I think it painted serial killers as this, you know, Joel Rifkin was like a single guy living with his mom, you know? Yeah. Ted Bundy had been captured, right? Jeffrey Dahmer. But these were loners. I think we hadn't seen the family man serial killer yet. Richard Ramirez had already happened. But like yeah. we hadn't seen the Joseph D'Angelo's or the Rex Hewermans, or, of course, the John Bitrolf. Like, the family man was still too fucking shocking for them to comprehend. I mean, I think BTK was before this, but... Yes. He was so polarizing. Like, this guy, it's, like, not as polarizing as, like, a BTK for people to kind of, like... I don't know. It's just... I don't know what how to say it, but it just is different, I guess. BTK, though, is his own little anomaly where, like, for how yeah. long that went on, and the taunting back and forth, yeah. and, like... Yeah, he definitely was the family man, and I think that shocked everyone. But I think his weirdness with all of his, like, BDSM photos that came up, like, yeah. I think people just saw him as something else. But this guy was a, quote-unquote, normal guy. With BTK, you had all this evidence. Like, there was obvious evidence of him being yeah. this absolutely creepy loser. Where totally. this, these his especially his neighbors aren't seeing it yet. They're just like, not my neighbor that helped me shovel snow off my driveway one time. How could that be? It's like... A hundred percent. So, okay, we're going to talk about John. By trade, John was a carpenter and a home improvement contractor, and he was known for doing odd jobs for his friends and neighbors when they needed it. So they just loved him so much. So he plowed snow away, helped people build, build decks or install windows, stuff like that. And when John was arrested, his, his next door neighbor said he helped everybody. That's why it's just so shocking. And another neighbor told Newsday, if somebody said to me, that guy's a murderer, I wouldn't have thought it in a million years. It doesn't seem to be in his nature or his character. Right. And John Bitrolf seemed to be kind of the kind of guy that other guys wanted to be friends with. He was like a man's man, right? Maybe guys were jealous of his abilities because, I mean, this guy built his own house, like notebook style, which included a garage and a playhouse for his kids. He was really good at creating a veneer to protect his true self from being seen. On weekends, he'd share beers with his neighbors. 
and the locations would rotate. Sometimes it'd be his deck, sometimes it'd be his neighbor's deck. And Bitrolf had horses. So did one of his neighbors. So Bitrolf helped clear trees to make room for the horse paddocks. The guy, outwardly, if you didn't know him too well, he was seemingly reliable, safe. He was a show up and do it kind of dude. A dude that, yeah, I can drop my kids off at your house if something comes up. That's the kind of guy he appeared to be. And those who knew Bitrolf described him as an animal lover, and they described him as happy-go-lucky and said he was always smiling. But Bitrolf liked to go deer hunting upstate where he had a second home, and sometimes he offered his neighbors deer meat when he had too much. So this is a little bit of a contradiction to the whole animal lover thing. I don't know which animals he loved, but whatever. So based on these accounts, this guy sure does read on paper as, you know, the family man that the media describes him to be, but that's certainly not what he was. And it's not how he should have been referred to in the media as well, especially once evidence of his connection to these horrific murders came to light. He was a murderer masquerading as a family man, doing his darndest to shove down his true nature so no one ever caught a glimpse of it. But now he'd been exposed as the monster he truly was, the kind of man who could beat a mother named Rita Tangredi to death and leave her alone in the woods. But it seemed as though following Bitrolf's arrest, the media had a difficult time even suggesting something negative about this guy. Contrastingly, they continued to have no issues doing so with the other victims. And here's an example. A Manorville carpenter, a married father of two, plucked from an ordinary life when his DNA matched two cold murder cases, 30-year-old Rita Tangredi and 20-year-old Colleen McNamee, both prostitutes killed in 1993. Rita's niece Teresa saw the newspaper headlines and seeing John described as a family man by media outlets while her aunt was referred to as a hooker and a prostitute obviously made her sick to her stomach. These same media outlets had given little to no energy on finding the background of Rita and Colleen. The same news outlets referred to his victims using dehumanizing language and victim blamed. But here they were digging up all of the good characteristics that John Bitrolf had to offer. The part that really gets me is when they call him a family man. Everybody has their life path, you know, but just because you did good for the community or you helped out other people or you changed your ways doesn't justify the fact that you killed someone. I contacted on social media because I figured that was the best way to get a hold of them. I says, you guys call him a family man and make him out like this real honest guy. I said, but yet these women that he's killed call them prostitutes and it sounds so vulgar and, and downgrading i says you guys need to really do something different and you know you talk about his life but you guys don't know a thing about their lives and they had families and then that's when they started saying sex workers instead of prostitutes So now we're going to get into the how the police connected Bitrolf to Rita and Colleen's murders. So how did the authorities ever even know to arrest this really great guy? Well, another thing led to another, and we're going to get into it. So in 2012, the state of New York allowed their Division of Criminal Justice Services to collect DNA samples from all convicted criminals, regardless of what their crime was. They would put that DNA into CODIS, which stands for the Combined DNA Index System. 
Then that DNA sample could be compared to other DNA samples that had been collected from the crime scenes of unsolved cases. So this is a great idea, and that's how a lot of cold cases end up being closed. Right. So a year after this new law passed in 2013, John's little brother, Timothy Bitroff, violated a restraining order. Sounds like the apple doesn't fall too far. Like there's a lot of apples falling from this tree. Yeah. There you go, Timothy. Thanks for getting your brother. So this meant with the violation of this restraining order, he'd also violated his parole. And when a probation officer collected Timothy's DNA, she put it into the state DNA database. That was the rule. And from there, Timothy's DNA made its way right in Nakotis. And on August 16th of 2014, the director of New York's Office of Forensic Services contacted the Suffolk County Crime Lab with some news. And they told the folks at the crime lab that Timothy was a partial match for DNA found at the crime scenes of Rita Tangretti and Colleen McNamee, which means that Timothy wasn't the killer, but the killer was one of Timothy's relatives. And based on the high percentage of Timothy's DNA that matched it was almost certainly a very close relative like a brother. So the police followed the two remaining Bitrolf brothers. Certainly, this had to be one of them. And they collected their discarded trash and tested it for DNA, hoping it would be a match to the crime scenes at task here. So they found a cigarette butt from 41-year-old Kevin Bitrolf, and he tossed it out of the window in his silver Mazda as he left his home. But Kevin's DNA wasn't a match. So this means there's only one brother left. The authorities set up cameras outside 48-year-old John Bitrolf's house. When they saw John leave nine full trash bags outside, they took him in and searched them carefully. And the detectives were able to pull John's DNA from a plastic cup. And they knew they had him. John's semen was found at the crime scene of both Rita and Colleen. There was only a 1 in 81.6 quintillion chance that it wasn't him. I'll save you the Google. There are 18 zeros in quintillion. It was definitely John Bitrolf. And medical experts were able to place a timeline on John's semen. They could tell that he'd been with Rita and Colleen only 26 hours before they were killed. So what were the chances that John had hired a sex worker only a day before she was murdered? And what were the chances that this was happening twice? From collecting Timothy's DNA to slapping cuffs on John, this portion of the investigation only took 11 hours. And just to be extra sure, when the police brought John in for questioning, he drank water out of a coffee cup. Investigators took the DNA from that cup and tested that too. And again, it was a match. But you wouldn't know it from John's reaction. He was, and is, very adamant that it was not him. The authorities' video recorded their interrogation of John, and he denied everything. His exact words was, there's no way. When the homicide detectives finally told John that they found his semen on those women's bodies, he stopped talking and requested a lawyer. Then he made a phone call to his wife, in which he said, quote, I got arrested. I'm not kidding you. I'm dead serious. Two murderers from 1993. Two prostitutes. They're saying they found my semen in them. Hours after the interrogation, Bitroff was being dropped off at the 5th Precinct in Patchogue when he asked, How did you guys get my DNA? The accompanying officer explained the process of getting the partial DNA match from Timothy and then chasing down John's trash. To that, Bitroff said, I fucking knew it. I fucking knew it. Okay. And I want to just add some context to this. What he's doing here 
is trying to make it seem like Timothy is to blame. Oh. When they're like, oh, it's Timothy. And they're like, I fucking knew it. Like, that motherfucker framing me. Like, that's yeah. the context. And yeah. it's like, no, dude, you're too dumb to understand the science about why it's not Timothy and why it is you. I mean, they yeah. had Timothy's DNA. Timothy was cleared. Yes. <laughs> they had a direct sample and tested it against it. No, no, this is you. But oh what he's trying to do is like manipulate this narrative, right? right? And he thinks he's so smart. Like, I can pin this on Timothy. No idiot. This case was solved and is a testament to the miracle of modern DNA science. And even though Bitroloff is charged with murdering two women, Suffolk District Attorney Tom Spoda says there could be more victims out there, including Sandra Castilla. Her body was found in November of 1993 in Southampton. The manner of death, the positioning of her body, and other trace evidence of Miss Castilla is similar to that of Tangretti and McNamee. Okay, so in the context of the clip you just heard, a couple things to discuss real quick. First of all, so interesting, the DA who was speaking about the DNA advancements is none other than Tom Spoda. Might sound familiar, so he was a central figure in the Unraveled storyline. He helped James Burke cover up the beating of a suspect that was in custody, and he was party to derailing the list case and blocking the FBI from getting involved, thus delaying justice for many more years than necessary. So, so interesting to me that the same DA and some of these same police officers were involved in both cases, and both were riddled with corruption and problems and delays. Yeah. So certainly this is um, like indicative of how many more problems could have occurred during cases under these people's reigns. I mean, it really is terrifying to think about. Like, what if your mom or dad was in jail and was prosecuted under these people? You'd be like, they're innocent. <laughs> like, yeah. The whole thing is so fucked up. Yeah. Or vice versa. If you had a victim in this county and there was justice delayed for so long. I mean, so much injustice here. Just want to mention one more thing. Tom Spoda is in jail now. So again, not aging well for the lies and the cover-ups he participated in prior to this 2014 arrest. The things he did happened in 2012. So this guy's corrupt. He didn't belong here. It's all disgusting. And it's a shame men like this are put in charge of such important matters, frankly. Another thing that we learned in that clip is that John Bitrolf was also the lead suspect in the 93 murder of 28-year-old Sandra Costilla. Was John responsible for Sandra's murder as well? And would there be enough evidence to conclusively connect him to her case? How many more victims would there be of John Bitrolf? And as all of these questions arose publicly, Rita's niece Teresa watched this all unfold in real time, and she had so many questions as well. I looked for Long Island News. I wanted to see for myself, and I was watching these news reels and the live casts of the news, and they said about this guy, John Bitrolf, and I wanted to see who was my aunt's killer. And I remember looking at him, and I'm like, this is the guy who took my aunt's life away. And I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. And then, I guess, him being arraigned, I saw my mom and my stepdad at the time they were at the courthouse. They were on the news. And so then I knew that this was real. On July 31st of 2014, John Bitrolf pleaded not guilty to both counts of second-degree murder. 
During the plea hearing, the prosecuting attorney, Robert Biancavelli, described the injuries that Rita and Colleen has sustained. Our first-degree Teresa's mom, Diana, was there in support of her murdered sister. And upon hearing Rita's injuries, Diana fled from the room in tears. No family member should have to go through something like this. For three years, John Bitroff, behind bars, maintained his innocence from jail. When his trial began in May of 2017, members of his family supported him. If convicted, he faced a maximum sentence of life in prison. John continued to just say, it wasn't me. He even rejected a plea deal, which would have reduced his maximum sentence to 20 years to life in prison. He also should never have been fucking offered that plea deal. Are you kidding me? (laughs) That's insane. So this trial actually was going to be a tough one for the state to win. The prosecution knew that they needed more than just John's DNA evidence to ensure that he would be put behind bars for good. After all, John's defense attorneys could and did argue that he just happened to be with both of these women right before they both just happened to be murdered by somebody else totally coincidentally. But really, all that the Suffolk County DA's office had was John's DNA evidence. Right. And there were a few other pieces of evidence that the prosecution leveraged. Like, they had a letter that John wrote to someone while he was in jail. And in this letter, he said, they can't prove anything. They've got nothing. And they also had a tire tread mark near Rita's body, which may have matched John's 1993 GMC van, and a footprint that was between the size 9 and 12 that could have maybe possibly matched John's boot. But when you get down to brass talks, the prosecution had the DNA, and that was it. So to win this trial, the prosecution may have participated, sadly, in some practices that were sketchy at best and legal at worst, and again, Are we surprised? I mean, this is very, like, making of a murderer. Like, they believe Stephen Avery killed Teresa Hallback, so they plant a key to be like, let's seal his fate because he got away with it last time, or we fucked up last time, right? Like, this is bad. This is bad practice. They knew this guy did it, but they were worried about their flimsy case. Yeah. So what happens next isn't great. Yeah, we're not going to bore you with the details, but just know that the term Brady violation was thrown around a lot. And maybe rightfully so, since the assistant DA didn't give the defense evidence that even the judge said that he should have. And then there is this whole thing about the wood chips. My God, the wood chips. I mean, you've heard us say this word. I don't think I've ever said wood chips so many times in my entire life than we have in this episode. But they are significant for several reasons. There had been multiple reports that wood chips were found at the crime scene of both Rita and Colleen. You heard us talk about them in part one when an officer was implicated in his pencil shavings in his car, right? So these wood chips, per the prosecution, were significant because John was a carpenter. If anyone's going to have wood chips in his car or be connected to wood chips at a scene, it would be him, a carpenter. And the assistant DA leaned hard into that argument. And initially, he let the jury believe that these were traditional wood chips. Like any (laughs) – when you picture a wood chip, like what the fuck else is it than what you're picturing? Like a shaving of wood, right? Yeah. Wood chips. Yeah. Okay? (laughs) Like the size of a fingernail or smaller. Like visibly wood chips. Like I don't know what else to describe them. But that's what everyone thought we were dealing with here. But the defense pointed out that through a suspicious clerical error, these wood chips had actually been destroyed. And this is really concerning and also illegal. Any evidence related to a homicide investigation should never be destroyed, even after the case is solved, which this one obviously wasn't. 
Right. And the defense also noted that, strangely enough, you can't see any of these wood chips, alleged wood chips, in the photos of the crime scene. And apparently, according to the defense argument, it's because they weren't wood chips at all. So apparently they were microscopic wood particles. Well, they were maybe wood particles. They hadn't tested these particles because testing the particles would have destroyed them. It was actually far more likely, according to the defense, that these were particles of plastic or metal, but they could have been wood, maybe, but they just weren't tested. And then they were destroyed. So these wood chips are fucking nothing. And there was no evidence that these particles were on Rita or Colleen just on their clothes. So this whole thing is a mess and a lot more was made of these particles than I think necessary. And then, like we said, the wood chips slash particles slash whatever the hell that they are were destroyed. So we're never going to know the truth behind them. So this was incredibly frustrating to John's defense team, who alleged that the Suffolk County police were now covering for Sergeant Michael Murphy. That's the guy who is the son of the chief of detectives that they investigated for these murders. And you're never going to believe this, but the pencil shavings that they found in Murphy's police vehicle, well, they had been mysteriously destroyed by a clerical error as well. Just destroying wood chips all over the place, left and right. And like not taking photos in like classic Suffolk County. Classic. classic Suffolk County. That being said, very much like many believe making a murderer, you know, in the case of that, like many believe, yes, the police planted evidence, but that man is guilty, you know, like yeah, a lot of people believe that. I'm not taking a stance because unless I was there, I don't know for sure. But for the record, we're not suggesting that John didn't kill these two women. He probably did. He most likely did. He, you know, you know where this is going. His DNA was there. There's a lot of evidence suggesting that he did, in fact, do this. We're just pointing out that his trial was an absolute shit show and that the only thing linking John to the crime was his DNA. And the police at that point were still very much corrupt. So, of course, the jury, upon hearing all this evidence, they're in a very challenging spot. And they were deadlocked three times while deliberating. So if you didn't know a deadlock jury, that can cause a mistrial. And the judge typically encourages the jury to go back and reexamine and try harder to reach a unanimous verdict over and over. And he did so in this case three times. But finally, on July 6th of 2017, after seven days of deliberation, the jury found 51-year-old John Bitrolf guilty of two counts of second-degree murder. John was sentenced to two consecutive 25 years to life in prison. And he has an active appeal that was recently filed in February of this year. Right. And finally, to the relief of Rita and Colleen's families, John Bitroff would be sentenced for taking the lives of these women. And Colleen's brother spoke at the hearing and said, Bitroff is a coward. He looked at him right in the face and said, you're a liar. You're an animal. You are a disease to the society. You are a stone cold killer. Following his sentencing, Assistant DA Biancavelli made an offhand comment that John might be responsible for the murders connected to the Long Island serial killer case. To put this in perspective, in terms of the Lisk timeline, like we said, the victims associated with this case had been discovered about seven years prior to this. And again, lots of similarities to the victims that John selected and the victims found on Ocean Parkway. And there was vast speculation that Bitroff was responsible for these victims as well. But back to what the assistant DA said to the reporters. He said, there remains of victims at Gilgo that may be attributed to the handiwork of Mr. Bitroff. And that investigation is continuing. 
What's even crazier is that the then DA, which means Biancavelli's boss, okay, who we heard from earlier in that news clip, he said, absolutely not. This guy is not responsible for these crimes. There is no unity in this attorney's department. Like, there's, it's so dysfunctional that these two, the DA and the ADA, are saying completely different things about this very significant thing. Yeah. But that being said, you know, Tom Spoda in many ways is not credible. So my instinct would be like, Bianca Velli is more credible. But in this case, Spoda was actually right, right? Spoda said to the Associated Press in July of 2014, there's no evidence or investigatory link between these murders. The manner in which these bodies were found is very unique and very different from the Gilgo crime scene. That may be true, Tom, but can we believe anything you say? And using that logic, I mean, many of the list victims were disposed of in various ways, like they were, and we still don't know about several of them. The murders attributed to Rex Hewerman are the Gilgo Four, and there are many we don't know about yet, and that no public statement from the law enforcement in Suffolk County, like they've said nothing about Rex Hewerman's connection to these crimes. So of course it's possible that Rolf's connected until we hear otherwise. And Spoda wasn't the only one who disagreed with the prosecutor's remarks. John Ray, the attorney representing the estate of Shannon Gilbert, also indicated that this comparison was incorrect. Ray called the theory wildly optimistic and said that there was no evidence to support it. Like we said, because Suffolk County law enforcement have only implicated Rex Hurman in the Gilgo Four cases, a lot of people still wonder if Bitrolf could be responsible for the murders of Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack. And they have been attributed to the Long Island serial killer case. However, their torsos were found in Manorville. And investigators have been at odds forever about whether the Manorville butcher and the Long Island serial killer could be the same person. And there are a lot of questions now, right? Like, obviously, Bitrolf and Hewerman were around at the same time, on the island at the same time. Both were capable of such despicable cruelty, both with a motive, means, and opportunity. Either of them could be responsible for Jessica and Valerie. Also, both were hunters, right? Like, in a former investigator described to PIX11 the way Jessica and Valerie's bodies were found, saying their leg area bound in a ball. Like, you have to be a hunter to do something like that. Both of these guys are hunters. Both had ties to Manorville. John more so because he lived there. And even if we had the answers as to who exactly killed them, the heartbreaking thing about this is even the truth, it's just an answer. It doesn't bring either of these young women back to experience all the life that they lost. Rex has only been charged with three victims, but linked to four. It's hard to know who else he will be connected to and if a different serial killer may be attributed for the other victims. We'll just have to wait and see how the prosecution for their cases unfolds. And What we can say universally is that we look forward to the day they receive justice, no matter who did this. However, what is very possible is that Bitrolf is responsible for other deaths, not connected to the list case. Like Jack mentioned earlier, the death of 28-year-old Sandra Castilla, who was last known to live in Queens, but she was also known to be moving around Long Island a lot, so we're not exactly sure where she was living at the time. And unfortunately, there's not a ton of details readily available about her life. Yeah, it's really tragic, but true. Sandra's body was found on November 20th of 1993, 18 days after Rita's body was found. 
and Sandra's crime scene shared many of the same characteristics as Rita and Colleen's, except two differences. One, Sandra had been mutilated after her death, and two, Sandra did not have a history of sex work. However, there is one really glaring similarity, and that's that Sandra's left shoe was missing when she was found. It seems like Bitrolf got lucky because none of his DNA was found on Sandra's body. So sadly for her family and for her, no charges were ever made against him for her murder. But it certainly does make you wonder, how many more women could this monster be responsible for murdering? For Teresa, the murder of her beloved Aunt Rita will always be a dark cloud in her life. But if there were to be even the slimmest of a silver lining, it would be that her family has grown closer in the wake of this tragedy. It brought my family a little bit closer together. That's one thing it did. My mom hadn't seen her brother Tommy in like almost two decades. And it brought her closer to my Uncle Tommy, my Aunt Rita's oldest brother. And you know what? It's a shame. Family should be sticking together, you know, no matter what. But usually that's the thing. Death brings people closer, you know. But it's difficult for Teresa to feel like justice has been served for her aunt's brutal death. Rita was a person, an entire human being, and now she's gone. She'll never be here again, simply because one man had the gall to think she shouldn't be. My aunt was a human being, and her life was taken from her. I mean, literally taken from her. She didn't deserve that. Nobody should ever have that done. Thou should not murder You know, I'm not totally religious, but my beliefs, I mean, ever since I was young, you know, nobody should be murdered. Nobody. And I just really feel bad for all the other victims out there and women and men and children that are gone from us every single day because someone wanted something from these people or just to get a kick to take someone's life. Someone like that does not deserve to live. But it's not my say, you know? I'm not the judge. He's still alive, you know? And my aunt isn't, and Colleen. But only God can judge. Only someone higher up can judge. Who are we? The idea of justice has evolved over time. 3,700 years ago, Hammurabi's code clearly stated an eye for an eye. But you know what they say. With that mentality, what? the whole world goes blind or whatever. But let's say Hammurabi's code was still in use today. How does an eye for an eye work? If one man is killing one woman after another, after another, after another. There's no getting even with someone for something like that. One life doesn't trade for four. The magnitude of what's taken and the stretch of pain that's caused in the wake of something like that, it's insurmountable. The best we can do is lock these monsters up and throw away the key. We're getting better and better at catching them, but it's like a game of whack-a-mole. It's so frustrating. It feels like every time you pull one of these demons off the street, another one just pops up to terrify another community. The questions persist. How are these monsters made? How many are there? And of course, how do we stop them?
Well, a huge thank you to Teresa for being our first degree guest for both of these episodes. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you want any more bonus true crime content. We're having a lot of fun over there. And stick around tomorrow because we're going to have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Gerard Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by me and Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Ancestry, Riverhead News Review, New York Department of Corrections, New York Post, Fox News, Find a Grave, Newsday, Daily News, The Citizen, The Journal News, The New York Times, and The Democrat Chronicle, original research from Unraveled, and interviews. And as always, our first three guest is always our largest source.